This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to guide and direct us in our thinking this morning. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Uh, You've revealed your word to us in a remarkable manner. Unlike other religious books from various false religions, we do not have a holy book that was given at one time to one person, but it was revealed over a period of uh, 2,000 years, revealed through at least 40 different authors, revealed to us in a way that includes different kinds of literature, all in agreement where there's no contradiction, no dissension, an indication that this is not the product of simple human authors but has a a divine source for you breathed out your word through the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament so that it could be recorded and that we could have a sure and certain foundation for what we believe and that we might understand the purpose and nature of our lives, the purpose and nature of your plan for our life, and how we might have eternal life. We learn how to live and how we can live so that no matter what our circumstances might be, we can live above our circumstances and experience happiness and joy and stability, all because of our relationship with you. Now, Father, as we continue our study in this most significant section of Scripture, we pray that you might help us to accurately understand what has been revealed to us, and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to each one of us how we are to apply these principles in our own life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at the first five verses in this chapter this morning, and I've entitled this based on the opening words of what has been referred to and described as the Beatitudes, how to be happy, uh, really happy, eternally happy, happy in our soul regardless of what the external circumstances might be. So many of us face difficulties in life. We face a variety of adversities and challenges, problems related to finances, problems related to health, problems related to uh, our work, our careers, possibly our co-workers, challenges in terms of just living in the world that where Satan rules and where we live in the midst of a culture that is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity. If we want to be happy, we can't base our happiness on people, We can't base our happiness on circumstances. We can't base our happiness even on how we feel about things. We have to base our happiness on something that has an eternal, immutable, that means unchanging, foundation. For only when we base our happiness on that which is eternal and immutable can we always have happiness. Biblical happiness is not the emotional uplift that we often associate with happiness, but it is more profound than that. It is a happiness that relates to the inner tranquility and contentment of our soul, that even when at a surface level we are disturbed and upset about circumstances, for we remember that the night before our Lord went to the cross, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, 
He went through a tremendous emotional turmoil in anticipation of the cross, yet he never lost that eternal happiness and stability and contentment that he had in terms of being the eternal Son of God. So we recognize that where we face the challenges and the vicissitudes of life, we can also maintain an inner happiness and and, uh, contentment that is not subject to those ever-fluctuating circumstances around us. That's what the focal point is at this opening uh, introduction to what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you and review what I showed you last time in terms of a basic outline that helps us understand this section. There's a parallel message recorded in Luke chapter 6 that is somewhat shorter than Matthew's account. As the writers of Scripture were writing under the inspiration of Scripture and writing, as I've been teaching, to present a certain case for Christ as the, for Jesus as the Messiah, God the Holy Spirit gave them the divine ability to, or the ability to edit uh, what, what Jesus taught. We do not believe that every single word that he stated in this uh, discourse uh, was recorded. It's, if you read it through, it's very short, but the indications in the scriptures, this took some time. Uh, it's not a short, was not originally a short discourse, but we get a divinely edited product here that tells us exactly what Jesus said. There were some things perhaps left out. There are some things that Luke recorded Matthew did not, some things Matthew recorded that Luke did not, but both recorded under the guidance and the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Now, an outline like this helps us just to orient and understand what we are reading that we might come to a better understanding of what Jesus taught the disciples in the original setting and the implications and application of that to our own lives. The first two verses give us the setting. Secondly, the next major division gives us the character and calling of those who inherit the kingdom. Of course, we have to talk about the meaning of that phrase. It's often misunderstood and misinterpreted. But this serves as the introduction to the rest of the message. It was a discourse. It's not quite a sermon because of the way in which it's it's handled, not a sermon in the sense that many people think of today. Uh, that's the traditional title given to it. It's more, more uh, accurately called a teaching. It's more accurately called a discourse. Uh, it's more accurately identified as instruction by Jesus to his disciples. But it does, the opening section here does indeed give us a prologue or an introduction, and themes are mentioned, ideas are mentioned here that are developed more fully through the course of the discourse. So 5.3 through 5.16 gives us that introduction. And then from 5.17 through 7.12, we see the heart of the teaching. And this is an explanation and a description of experiential righteousness. Now, we make a distinction between experiential righteousness and another term, imputed righteousness. Imputed is a time-honored theological concept that is, and that translation of imputation or imputed is used in many of the uh, older translations of the Scripture. Uh, We live in a world today where, due to a failure of the public education system, modern translations have dumbed their vocabulary down. And so if you look at some of the modern translations, some of these time-honored, rich theological words developed and utilized in English over the centuries, such as imputation and righteousness even, propitiation, uh, reconciliation, justification, these words are not found in some of the modern translations because they're deemed to be a little too difficult or over the head of the average reader. Imputation is a term that describes the crediting of Christ's righteousness to the believer at the instant that we trust in Christ, so that it's it's a banking term, so that when a person, uh, for example, would go to a bank and uh, seek a loan, perhaps your credit is abysmal, 
And not only is your credit score not above 600, it's deep into the minus numbers. And there's no way a bank is going to give you credit. And so you seek a cosigner. And a cosigner comes along who is richer than Bill Gates and has much, many more assets to his name than you can even imagine. And that individual, as a cosigner, uh, has his wealth assigned or imputed to your account so that when the banker looks or the loan officer looks at your account to determine whether you qualify for a loan, he doesn't see that abysmal negative 15,000 credit score that you have. He sees the credit score of your uh, uh, cosigner. And on the basis of his positive numbers, you're given the loan. That's, that's the analogy, that we have an abysmal righteousness number. Nothing that we can ever do can ever even bring that up to the level of zero. We are uh, absent all righteousness. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, so that it's not a factor of our own individual character or morality, but it's the character of Christ his righteousness that is assigned to us at the instant of salvation so that God the Father looks at his righteousness and declares us to be justified for salvation. It's a free gift. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we've deserved. It doesn't even change our morality. It doesn't give us righteousness in a sense of infusing that into our our nature so that we are not as unrighteous as we were before. We are given a gift that of someone else's righteousness, so it's on the basis of their righteousness that we are declared righteous. That's imputed righteousness. Experiential righteousness is the quality of righteous living that a believer exhibits after salvation based on his moment-by-moment, day-by-day, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, walk by the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, all these different terms that are used in Scripture. And so this is the focal point of the Sermon on the Mount. It is describing this kind of experiential righteousness, the application of the Word of God in the life of the believer uh, that should characterize his life in preparation for his future destiny in the millennial or messianic kingdom. In chapters 5, 17 to 48, we learn of the principle of righteousness in the law. In uh, chapter 6, 1 through 18, there's the practice of righteous living, and incidentally in those verses, there's an emphasis on rewards. We earn rewards, but salvation is a free gift. This is another indication that this is not talking about how to become saved, but it is talking to already saved people about how they should live in preparation for their future destiny uh, in the millennial kingdom and in heaven. Uh, the perspectives of righteousness are then described in chapter 6, 19 through 7, 12, and then there's a conclusion of several warnings from the king in 7, 13 through 7, 27. This helps us establish this, this framework for understanding uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last time I pointed out that as we interpret or come to understand what Jesus meant when he stated the things in the Sermon on the Mount, and some of which are difficult, some of which people have uh, had a lot of challenge understanding. In fact, I had someone comment to me after class last time that, that in all of her years as a believer, she's never really understood Matthew, and she's beginning to get a handle on it, but she's not, um, uh, but unfortunately she just can't live up to it. Well, I think that's an attitude for many of us. Uh, I talked with a friend of mine the other day, and we decided that as soon as we think we have a handle on Matthew, somehow we lose our grip. It is not an easy gospel to understand. A lot of that is because we bring a lot of... Um, preconceived notions about the Gospels and about Jesus and about some of the terminology that's used to the reading of Matthew, and it just seems to contradict itself or not quite make sense to us. 
And that's because we've taken some misunderstandings and applied that to our reading of this text. Some of those things we will hopefully correct as we go through Matthew. But as I study it, uh, it is difficult, but it just demands a lot of time of reflection and study to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is a very significant part of understanding uh, what Jesus is teaching here. In verse 3, as we look at the introduction, introductory section called the Beatitudes, we're told that the blessed are the poor in spirit in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this concept of the kingdom is mentioned there. It's mentioned again in a synonymous type phrase, inheriting the earth in verse 5. That's also a reference to the kingdom. In verse 10, it's mentioned that theirs, again, that those who are blessed uh, in terms of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 12, we're told that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that, that their reward is in heaven, that is, in the kingdom of heaven. Beyond these first 12 verses in this introduction, there are six more references to the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's an extended section in 6, 1 through 21, talking about rewards. As I pointed out a minute ago, rewards are something that are earned and given on the basis of works. But Scripture says that that we are saved not by works, but through faith. That means that we're not talking about how to get into heaven or how to have eternal life, how to become saved or justified. We're talking about how the justified person should live in order to please God with their life and to be prepared for the future kingdom uh, and the uh, way in which we will serve the Lord in the millennial kingdom as those who rule and reign with him throughout not only the millennial kingdom but then on into eternity. So what we learn from this in terms of the introduction is that Jesus is addressing his disciples, those who are already saved, those who are already justified, those who already have eternal life, those who have already been born again, those who are members of the royal family of God. He is he's addressing them and teaching them on how they should live in light of that future destiny in the messianic or millennial kingdom. The setting is given in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. He looks at the multitude. The Greek verb there is the verb oida, which is a word that means to know. It's a verb of perception. Usually it relates to an intuitive type of knowledge as opposed to gnosko, which is a, an acquired learning. And it would indicate here that Jesus is not only just looking at the multitude, but he understands their nature, their condition, who they are. He sees their the reality of the nature of the multitudes. And there's a contrast here between the term multitudes or the crowd and the disciples. He looks at the multitudes, and then he went up on a mountain, up on a hillside, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And so he begins to teach his disciples. Now, there's a little bit of difference between Luke's account and Matthew's account, uh, but, Matthew, but I think they can be reconciled in the sense that if they are talking about the same event, that Jesus looks at his disciples in Luke 6, which indicates that they are his primary audience, even though... I think on the Matthew situation, he describes the crowds that find him and uh, circle around him to listen in on what he is teaching the disciples. We recognize that he is primarily addressing his disciples. His purpose for addressing them is to instruct them on the difference between his kingdom, the kingdom that he's announcing, which is the same kingdom that John the Baptist had announced, Remember, John showed up on the scene and said to the Jewish audience, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They understood exactly what that meant, that this was a promised, literal, physical, 
uh, geopolitical kingdom centered in Jerusalem that had been promised and prophesied uh, in the Old Testament, and that its proximity was close. And we understand that proximity is close because the king was present, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus continued to proclaim that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a message to a Jewish audience based on verbiage and language back in Deuteronomy that if the, the Jewish people were apostate and, and were worshiping idols and drifted from God, that they needed to change. They needed to turn back to God. That's the essence of the word uh, repent. The Hebrew word is shuv. It's not a word like the English word that implies sorrow, remorse, regret, but it is simply that they needed to change the focus of their lives from serving themselves, serving uh, other gods, uh, serving other religious systems, to serving God and obeying him. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites came into the land, that is the picture of analogous, uh, a picture that's analogous to our salvation, they were told how they should live in the land through a document called the Mosaic Law. The application of that law to their lives did not mean that they were sinlessly perfect, but it meant that they would be producing a righteous kind of life that should characterize the people of God. They should love the Lord their God, not just through external forms and religious activities and rituals, but they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was to be internal as well as external. But under the religious systems of the Pharisees and the scribes, that mosaic system was reduced to external formalities with no internal change. And so what Jesus is going to be instructing his disciples about is that if uh, you are going to produce the kind of righteousness that should characterize someone whose destiny is the kingdom, then it should, it's going to be quite different from the righteousness uh, that's taught by the religious leaders of their time. It's not going to be the same as that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he is instructing these disciples. Now, the fact that they are believers is important. Last time I put this up on the screen, and I want to review it because this actually is critical to understanding some of the more difficult passages in the, in the sermon. There are many who will teach the sermon, say it's not really a way of salvation, but by the time you get especially into the latter part of the seventh chapter, Jesus is looking at the multitudes and he's including statements that are related to salvation because there's some among the multitudes that are not saved. I would not agree with that. Throughout this section, Jesus treats his audience, his primary audience, those to whom he is speaking as believers. So he addresses the disciples, as we see in 5, 1, and 2, not the listening crowd. Second, Jesus does not ever address the question of how to get saved in the sermon. It's how to live as someone who is already saved. Third, Jesus tells them, tells his audience, that they will be rewarded in heaven can't be rewarded in heaven if you're not going to be there, if you're not saved already. Tells them that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That indicates that they are already believers. He gives them instructions on prayer, rewards, giving, and fasting. All of these are spiritual life issues, not how to be born again, how to have a spiritual life issue. The audience also asks to be taught to pray. Not, and that is a question coming from believers who want to accurately pray. So for all of this, we see Jesus is addressing a, a believing audience. We're told then that Jesus came up on the mountain, and in the latter part of, of uh, verse 1, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, at this particular time in, in Judaism, when a rabbi stood to teach, then he was to be, to be taken quite as seriously as if he was seated. The act of sitting down in order to teach or to give instruction indicated that you need to really pay attention to what I'm saying. 
We have some similar things like that that have held on down through the years. For example, if you've got a background or understand anything about Roman Catholicism, uh, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the seat, then that is considered to be infallible. It's not. We don't believe that doctrine. But it emphasizes the fact that when seated, there is a different level of seriousness and significance given to than that which is said when he is standing up. That has a long tradition in Western civilization, one that is not uh, recognized so much in our culture today. So Jesus sat down, and that was the signal to his disciples that they needed to gather around and to pay attention to what he was, uh, what he was saying. And then he began to teach initially related these issues, eight different characteristics related to those who would be in the kingdom, the kind of righteousness that their lives would demonstrate that would be in contrast to that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's not presenting the characteristics of how to get into the kingdom in terms of being saved or getting eternal life, but because that would be basing it on works, but he is presenting how the saved believer should live. He then addresses his disciples in verse 2. Matthew presents it this way, Then he opened his mouth and taught. Jesus began to teach. The phrase opening his mouth indicates a solemn or revelatory event. Jesus is now going to reveal the nature of his kingdom. He's simply been announcing it up to this point, and now he's going to begin to give new information about the kingdom and the kind of character expected from those who will live as future citizens and rulers of that kingdom. Now, in the opening verse, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, as we'll see as we go through these beatitudes, as they are called, uh, there's been a lot of misinformation and misinterpretation because often these verses are taken in isolation. But as we'll discover, many of them have a rich background in both Old Testament and they're repeated or the concepts are repeated in other places in the New Testament. He begins with this statement uh, related to uh, blessedness. He uses this word blessed. It's the Greek, uh, Greek word makarios, and he uses it nine times in these, uh, these verses. The last two, as we'll see, mentioned in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, that's a synonymous statement, so that those two verses should be taken together. So nine times he uses the word blessed, and the last two times they refer to the same character uh, quality related to those in enduring uh, persecution. They're called beatitudes from the Latin word beatitudo. And beatitudo is simply the Latin word that means blessing or happiness. This is a, this word that is used in the Greek, makarios, is different from the word eulogetas, which is brought over into English as eulogy, that sometimes it's translated blessed, uh, but makarios has more of the idea of spiritual happiness, a state of blessing related to one's uh, relationship to God, one's spiritual relationship to God. It's a state of happiness that is not based on physical, material, or emotional circumstances. It is based on a person's individual walk with the Lord. Uh, a New Testament passage that relates to this is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. There the Apostle Paul says that I do not speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever state I am in, in other words, whatever my circumstances are, I have learned to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to suffer loss. Everywhere, 
And in all things I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember learning that last verse as a memory verse as a child and singing a song to help remember that. And I wasn't really sure what all things are. I think a lot of people are that way, that I can handle anything, whatever it is. But in context, what Paul is saying is no matter what my external circumstances are, whether I am in physical, financial, or material abundance, or if I am in financial or physical or material loss, I can be happy, I can handle anything because my happiness, my sense of stability and tranquility is not based on the ebb and flow of my physical circumstances, but it's based on my relationship with Jesus Christ, and he's the one who truly strengthens me. So this word that's translated blessed is the word makarios, uh, the um, uh, Bauerdanker Arnton Gingrich lexicon says that this is a word that indicates a privileged recipient of divine favor. So it's more than just having a state of euphoria in the sense of happiness. It has to do with a, a deep, abiding, profound sense of tranquility, contentment, stability, based upon that relationship with God so that whatever happens in our life, whether it's good, bad, whatever those circumstances are, we can have that sense of stability. Now, throughout these Beatitudes, Jesus uses this formula where he states the fact of being blessed, and then he relates that to a character quality. He refers to the poor in spirit in verse 3 to those who mourn in verse 4, to the meek in verse 5, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 6, for the merciful in verse 7, the pure in heart in verse 8, the peacemakers in verse 9, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake in verse 10. These are these character qualities, and so he says, happy are those, and usually we think of these as not the most... uh, pleasant of circumstances or situations, and then he explains, gives an explanation of why they are happy or stable. It's followed by the statement indicated in the New King James translates it with the word for, but in the Greek this is a particle, a conjunction hati, which usually indicates the cause or the reason for something. So we could translate it, blessed are the poor in spirit, because... Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The other thing to note here is that throughout this section, he uses a present tense verb, but it is not used in the sense of what is going on in the present. The present tense is often used in what uh, grammarians will call a proleptic sense. You've got to go away with at least one new vocabulary word this morning. A proleptic means that in light of something that will happen in the future. And so it's it's also referred to as a future use of the present tense. Something is so certain in the future that it is spoken of as a present reality. So it's not talking about uh, something in terms of theirs being the kingdom of heaven now, But if they are living and demonstrating this character quality today, then this will be the consequence in the future in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this first statement, the first beatitude, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a difference between this verse and its parallel in the Gospel of Luke, Luke leaves out that phrase in spirit, but I think the Matthew passage tells us what the implication is, even in Luke, that it's not a reference to physical poverty. It's not, Jesus is not giving an economic comment here about the fact that, that those who are physically, materially, economically poor are somehow spiritually better off than those who are uh, rich or wealthy. If Jesus were teaching that, he would be contradicting himself, for there are uh, numerous places in the Scripture where there are wealthy believers 
who are not condemned for the possession of wealth. We can think of men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. We can also think of others in the uh, book of Acts, like Barnabas and others who had property and used that for the benefit of other believers. They did not render themselves materially or economically destitute uh, for a spiritual purpose. So we come to this word that is translated poor. It's the Greek word tokos that is actually has the sense of being extremely destitute financially. It's not just being poor. It's not just having a difficult time making ends meet. It's not just living in substandard housing or in difficult circumstances, but it has to do with being worse off than even a homeless person uh, seeking a handout down at your local intersection. It is uh, the, the word that is commonly used for ordinary poverty is the Greek word uh, panikros. And panikros has that idea of just being poor. This word, aptakos, indicates something much more extreme than that. Uh, it's a verb that has its, uh, it comes from a verb that has its basic meaning as to shrink or to cower or to cringe. In classical Greek, the word was used to refer to a person who uh, had been reduced to uh, total uh, destitution and that he had absolutely nothing left. Uh, it's used of the beggar Lazarus in Luke 16:20, But it's not the word that's used to describe the poverty of the uh, widow who gave two small coins as described in Luke 21.2. She is simply considered uh, Pentecost. Uh, she's poor, but she hasn't been reduced to the status of a beggar. Uh, so this is talking about being an, in an extreme circumstance of, of, of poverty. Now, when we look at some other ways in which the word is used, it's applied spiritually to certain conditions. For example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus is uh, challenging, confronting the church at Laodicea and says, because you say, I am rich, so they were physically prosperous and materially wealthy, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's not a word that is used necessarily to refer to uh, physical economic circumstances, but it can describe spiritual circumstances and is applied that way in Revelation 3.17. It's used that way in James 2.5 as well, where James writes, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. So there he's using it to refer also to a spiritual condition, a condition of uh, humility, in contrast to those who are arrogantly uh, proud of their self-righteous works and the kind of mentality which characterized the scribes and the Pharisees. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize your own spiritual poverty, that you are hopeless, helpless, and lost in terms of being able to produce anything in your life that has any value for God and for eternity. It is a, a state of mind, a state of humility, recognizing that I don't bring anything to the table. Jesus Christ provided everything for me. And to continue living my spiritual life, I have to recognize that it's not based on me. It's not even based on who I am. It's based on uh, the spiritual work of Christ upon the cross. Uh, he is the one who also provides me with all of my resources in order to live my spiritual life. It's not based on who I am, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we have an episode related to um, a beggar, one who is poor, and a tax collector and, and, and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes and looks at the tax collector and says that I uh, uh, thank God I'm not like him. 
and the tax collector just comes and says, I have nothing to bring to God, uh, just forgive me as I am. And that's the picture of the difference between the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and genuine uh, humility as exhibited by those who are truly poor in spirit. The result of this, we're told in in the second part of the verse, is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, is a reference to the future literal, millennial, or messianic reign of Christ upon the earth. In Matthew, especially in this section, the phrase, uh, these phrases related to inheriting the kingdom and entering the kingdom and obtaining or owning the kingdom are all somewhat synonymous. They're not related to getting saved. They're related to our possession of responsibility and rewards and uh, our future ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom. If this had to do with getting into heaven when we die, then it would be based on works. And there are those who try to jump through various hoops to make that. You could make that case work if you took verse 3 out of out of context and tried to interpret it, that until you recognize you can't bring anything to salvation, uh, you won't get saved. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, not based on works. All of that is true, but that doesn't fit this verse in the context of Matthew uh, 5 through 7 or the context of, this, of uh, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to those who are already believers. Why would he be giving them a condition for getting, uh, getting saved? He's talking about something different. He's talking about their future destiny in the kingdom. We come then to the next beatitude, Matthew 5, 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word for mourning here is the Greek word pentheo, which has to do with being sad, with grieving or mourning. Somehow that doesn't fit with the concept of being blessed, with being happy. Why is it that there's this emphasis on mourning? Is this talking about physically mourning over the loss of someone or grieving over the loss of someone, or is there something more significant taking place here? What we see here is that Jesus is talking about a spiritual grief over one's condition, not uh, like the Pharisees who were focusing on the fact that God was going to be well pleased with them because of their righteous acts and they were looking forward to rewards because of all of the good things they did. This is a grief that is based on an honesty with oneself about our failures and our sins as well as that of the world around us. It's a profound realization of the depravity of man and the perversity of the world around us. If this is taken and interpreted within the context of the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the condemnation of the Jewish religious system of his day, then this would be indicating that a a believer or a person would be blessed if they were honest about the depravity of Israel, both in terms of personal sin and corporate sin. So they couldn't just look out and, and be satisfied with where they are, but it's a recognition of a dissatisfaction on, because of the sin individually and corporately that was not being dealt with. So by application, it indicates those who recognize that they not only do we have nothing to bring to God, but that we are still sinners and we are absolutely and totally dependent upon him and we recognize how serious sin is in our own lives. This is exemplified in a couple of different passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, 136, the psalmist writes, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. This is an expression of grief as one looks out over the culture and sees its rebellion against God, its perversity, and its depravity. We are not desensitized to the uh, sinful, depraved elements of the culture around us. In, ex- in Ezekiel 9, 4, 
the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and says, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done uh, within it. Again, a recognition that we are to grieve. There's a sense of, of loss, a sense of mourning and sadness over the culture around us, both corporately and individually. Today we have, in the second part of the verse, it says that those who mourn shall be comforted. The word therefore comforted is the, a participial, or future passive rather, of uh, the word, the verb parakaleo, the noun is applied to both Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. So we are comforted by the presence of Christ and also the Holy Spirit. First John two one, we're told, "My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father." Jesus and Jesus Christ, the righteous. The phrase advocate there is a translation of paraklesis. So Jesus is our comforter. We have another comforter, as Jesus announced in John fourteen twenty six, that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so those who are cognizant of sin and depravity in their lives are comforted by the fact that we have an advocate, a comforter, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as our advocate before the throne of God, and we also have God the Holy Spirit indwelling uh, each and every one of us. Now, the third the third beatitude in verse 5 says, Blessed or happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, in English, the word meek often indicates somebody who's weak, somebody who's indecisive, somebody who's just a, uh, 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 is run over by other people, is non-assertive, and is taken advantage of by others. That's not the biblical concept of meek. The word here is prous, which indicates uh, humility, uh, someone who is uh, gentle, nevertheless strong. In fact, what we learn in the Bible is the most meek man in the Bible is Moses, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that the man Moses was very meek, or New American Standard translates it extremely humble, above all men which were upon the face of the earth. Meekness is not somebody who's just run over by other people, but meekness was somebody who is submissive to the authority of God. If we examine the context of Numbers 12, it's in the context of those who have rebelled against Moses and rebelled against God's authority. So to be meek means to be properly oriented to the authority of God and living your life in the midst of that strength. Moses led three million rebellious Jews across uh, the wilderness for 40 years. That took a tremendous amount of courage and a tremendous amount of strength. The Lord Jesus Christ was also considered meek and humble, and he is the same Jesus that went into the temple on two different occasions and physically threw the money changers out of the temple. He's the one who stood up to the arrogance and the self-righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, even to the point of uh, costing or sacrificing his life at the cross. This is not not the sign of somebody who's weak and wimpy and just uh, run over by everybody in the culture. Meekness in Scripture is a sign of strength that comes from being in right relationship to God and dependent upon His strength, His power, and being submissive to His authority. The verse also builds off of Psalm 37.11, indicating a future inheritance in the land. In Psalm 37.11, we read almost the same phrase, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Here, the word earth would indicate, would also, or should also be translated land, for it is based on the land promise of God that he would give the kingdom to Israel and the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a kingdom-oriented promise that those who are properly related to God will have ownership rights In the coming kingdom, we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So this morning what we've done is we've looked at these first three Beatitudes. We focused on the fact that they are addressing Christians and not non-Christians, and the focal point is not how to get saved or have eternal life, but how that eternal life, in terms of its qualitative aspects today, should be developed in the life of the believer, so that as we learn to walk by the Spirit, as we learn to live in obedience to God's Word, God the Holy Spirit produces a character transformation in us, and it is on the basis of the strength of that character transformation that we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be given uh, various roles and responsibilities and rewards in the coming kingdom when Jesus returns and establishes that at the end of the tribulation period. But salvation, that is having eternal life, being assured of your future destiny in heaven rather than the lake of fire, is not based on works. It's not based on character change. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. By simply believing and trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have a salvation not based on what we do or who we are, but it's based upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, that he paid the penalty in full for our sins. He paid the penalty as our substitute so that all we have to do is to believe on him. We accept his death in our place as a free gift. There are no strings attached. You are not someone who takes back what you have given so that at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, we're given eternal life. It is ours forever and ever. And now we have to decide what we're going to do with that life. Are we going to develop it or are we going to let it atrophy? Are we going to develop it so that we are properly prepared for our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we just going to let this new life lie fallow in this in this life. The challenge is ours. Are we willing to accept the challenge to be true, maturing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, ready to rule and reign with him, or are we just going to sit back and live life on our own, own terms? That's the challenge before each of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would uh, emphasize this message, bring it back to our memory, challenge us with it, we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.